Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. This is the podcast for those who want to delve deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Nikki Lovegrove. The world has a number of different indexes looking at issues from human rights to transparency to democracy to development, and it's going to get another one. Today we're talking with the woman who's um, helped develop a new, brand new index looking at women and security. It's called the Women, Peace and Security Index. My co-host for today's pod is Dr. Sharon Bessel from Crawford School of Public Policy. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, Nikki. It's great to be here. So today we're talking with Dr. Jenny Klugman, who is a fellow at the Kennedy School of Government's Women in Public Policy program at Harvard University. And she's also a managing director at Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security. And I'm really excited to talk to her. Nikki, I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well. As you said, Jenny's doing some really innovative work around developing the Women, Peace and Security Index, and she's doing that within a university context. But previously, Jenny has been a a very important player in the global public policy space. She was formerly Director of Gender and Development at the World Bank. She's co-authored three human development reports. So Jenny's someone that's right across some of the most pressing issues facing the world today. And this work on Women, Peace and Security Index is really innovative and is, is taking global conversations in new directions. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Well, before we get into that, I'd just like to remind our listeners that you can always find us on social media. We are on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And of course, as always, policyforum.net. Now let's chat with Jenny. Jenny Clarkman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about the Women, Peace and Security Index that you've helped develop. But before we get into that, I just thought you could help um, answer. Why do we need to explore the connection between gender and security? Well, I think security concerns are significant worldwide. We see it in the shape of kind of major conflicts in countries which have been beset by recurrent large-scale violence over time. Uh, But security doesn't only happen in the context of war. It can happen in the community. uh, It can happen within the household. Most women are actually affected or much more likely to be affected, um, adversely affected by intimate partner violence um, in their home. So thinking about the ways in which this can affect women and men, girls and boys differently at these various levels, uh, I think is something important for all of us to be thinking about, not only as academics, but also uh, for policymakers, multilateral agencies, and so on. And so as I mentioned, you have developed this new index. Can you tell us a bit more about this index? What does it measure? Well, it's an innovation in, I think, important ways. There are a number of gender indices which capture, for example, whether girls finish school, whether or not women are in parliament, uh, whether or not women are in paid work. And these aspects are undoubtedly important, but typically, or in fact, invariably, exclude those aspects that I just mentioned. So for example, whether or not women are safe in their own homes, in their communities, or whether or not in fact, they're 
uh, countries at large are beset by large-scale violence. So in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda, which was recently agreed by 193 governments around the world, it seemed like a major opportunity to take these agendas forward together and to bridge those gaps which have traditionally existed between discussions about development on the one hand and discussions about security on the other. So Jenny, we see in the Women, Peace and Security Index, as we do in most indices that assess gender equality, that the Scandinavian countries do very well. We're probably not surprised by that. But we also see that Slovenia and Spain rank very well, ranking fourth and third respectively. What is it that makes these countries um, perform particularly well among the 153 countries that you assist. Well, across these three dimensions, we include some innovative aspects which maybe haven't been captured in previous approaches. So, for example, under inclusion, it's not only whether or not girls finish school or whether or not women are employed, but whether or not they have access to bank accounts, whether or not they have cell phones, for example. Uh, Under justice, we look at uh, legal discrimination against women uh, or or the lack thereof, as well as uh, norms and attitudes about women at work. And as I mentioned, at security level, security in the home and the community and at the societal level. And these particular countries manage to do consistently well across each of those dimensions. I think it's fair to say that the differences among the countries at the top are not enormous. You know, so a percentage point here, a percentage point there can end up differentiating particular countries. But you're right that there are these two countries are among those which do relatively well uh, in this in this ranking. I, I think it is really interesting to see you know, Spain and Slovenia there amongst the Scandinavian countries and the countries that we normally see at the top because it does give us different models and different ways of thinking about gender equality. But if we look at the other end, Jenny, and we look at the countries that perform quite poorly on the index, um, we see that many of those countries have been wracked by conflict. Um, But beyond conflict, do you see other factors that are consistently acting against progressing women's inclusion, justice and security in those countries that, that are not doing so well on the index? Well, clearly, Syria and Afghanistan, who are the bottom ranked uh, in 153rd place, are are clearly those which are characterised by large-scale battle deaths. But in fact, that's only a small contributor, you know, to their overall rankings. And my my colleagues at PRIO, we did this work jointly with the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, and they're very much world experts in the conflict sphere. And interestingly, um, when you look at the rankings with and without the security dimension, it's interesting to see that while security does make an important difference, it's not necessarily always the determining factor. So poor performance in the countries, the bottom dozen, is coupled with very weak investments, for example, in women's um, inclusion, for example, in education. Niger is among the bottom 12, for example. They've got particularly discriminatory attitudes towards women at work and women in society and um, adverse legal constraints. And so across a number of the countries that um, are featured in the bottom, they're doing poorly across the board. It's not just the presence of uh, war which distinguishes them. And so that's sometimes uh, a, a, an assumption that people have, that it's, it's really about conflict. But this index is showing quite clearly that it's more than that, that it's, it's about laws, conflict. I mean, clearly we, we see that there are interrelations. So, for example, the countries that are in conflict in terms of having large numbers of battle deaths are also 
are characterised by, on average, one-third higher rates of intimate partner violence. So the violence in the society is associated with higher rates of violence in the home. And we look at the evidence associated with that, which can be include, uh, for example, the loss of networks, the breakdown of law and order, um, increased stress, depression, alcohol use, um, increased normalisation of violence. So one would expect those bad things to go together, but not necessarily. And, for example, if there's disruption of education systems, for example, in the economy... Um, um, those things are going to, to work badly as well. We're doing some further academic investigations at the moment to look more rigorously at the causal relationships here, you know, what's really at play. So taking the organised violence measure out and putting that, if you like, on the left-hand side as a um, dependent variable and seeing how the indicators associated with gender inequality are associated with the likelihood of conflict, which I think is a very important and interesting question, which has been investigated earlier by people like Mary Caprioli and others, but those investigations are now somewhat dated, you know, back to the mid-2000s, 2005 or so, with earlier data. So it's interesting to go back now with the better data that we have and the more recent experience to see how those relationships might hold. So just then you mentioned um, some results that we obviously might expect, like the Scandinavian countries doing well or the, con- the countries in conflict zones doing not so well. Were there any parts of the report that really surprised you? Well, even I think one kind of encouraging finding is that even amongst the countries that do poorly, they're doing well typically on at least one indicator. So the case of Afghanistan does fairly poorly across a range of fronts, but on parliamentary representation is actually amongst the top third of countries. So what we find both among the relatively good performing countries and among the poorly performing countries, there are aspects which stand out. So among the the good performing countries, a number of Nordic countries actually have quite high rates of intimate partner violence. And we have some discussion of that in the report, the so-called Nordic paradox, and whether or not the intimate partner violence levels recorded there are a real reflection of higher rates of violence, possibly backlash uh, against high levels of gender equality in those societies, or whether it reflects higher self-awareness among women to report violence. And then likewise, among countries which are doing fairly poorly, there are bright spots as well. I think one interesting finding is that there are countries in every region above the global average. So whilst there are some regional commonalities in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, there are several countries above the global average, including Tanzania, Ghana, Namibia, South Africa. In Latin America, there are a number of countries above the global average as well. So the message here is, or the implication here, is that countries need not be looking to Scandinavia to good practice within their region, looking to neighbours. This shows the feasibility of improvement in more similar contexts and if you like constraints and resources, that improvement is possible. Each region kind of has its own role model as it, as it was um, in terms of a country that does well. How about the Asia-Pacific region? Are there any countries that, are, that stand out or that we can really look to? Well, Singapore does very well in the, um, in the Asia-Pacific region and the, the standout there is actually the very low rates of, um, by world standards of intimate partner violence in single digits, 6%. So they do relatively well. I think sadly and unfortunately... Um, a number of countries in the Pacific in particular didn't have sufficient data to enable us to estimate the index in 
um, we didn't want to rely on imputations. So for the countries for which we don't have sufficient data, they're listed in our report um, with the data which is available. But for example, Papua New Guinea and most of the other Pacific islands are missing. So a, a corollary, a very important message, I think, coming out of the report is the need for investments in data to enable good comparable work uh, to benchmark countries and, and pinpoint weaknesses as well as achievements. Just on that note about the need for data, um, I want to zoom out a little bit and ask, does the world really need another index? We've got a number of indexes now. Do you see countries responding positively to them and actually using the information that you collect to, um, to change their policies and improve their practices? Well, there's certainly a proliferation of indices. I've been involved as well in the Human Development Report and the, the Human Development Index, the Gender Inequality Index, the Multidimensional Poverty Index and, and others. And, and clearly, um, they do have an important role to play. And I think the reason for the proliferation is in part because um, the simplification of complex information in a single number and a, a ranking, a cross-country ranking, is politically very powerful. I think it's very important to go behind the simple number and ranking to to understand what that means. I think in our case, um, we would argue. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. That the innovation in bridging the development and security um, dimensions is sufficiently important to make a difference and to warrant the introduction of, of a new index. Clearly, its value depends on how it's used, um, as well as its technical credibility. So we're very concerned to make sure that there was sufficient rigour in terms of the data that was used and using established methods. But then linking it as well to the Sustainable Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Agenda means that we've chosen indicators that governments have already signed up to. Um, so it's not possible to say, well, that's not important. We don't think that you should be measuring this or that because they're indicators or measures which have actually already subject to international um, international commitment. We actually launched the index on the sidelines of the open security uh, open debate the Security Council last month in New York on women peace and security and the index itself was actually explicitly mentioned and referred to by a number of the, uh, the permanent members the ambassadors in in the debate possibly more so by countries that had done well in their regions. Uh, but I think across the board, it was very much welcome. So I'm hoping that over time, it will fill a role and will complement the important existing indices which policymakers and the media and academics have been able to use in various ways. So Jenny, as we're, we're talking about the, the growth of the number of um, indices that are available, as you know, I've been involved in developing the individual deprivation measure, which is a gender-sensitive measure of multidimensional poverty. Um, and that work's taking place here at the Crawford School in partnership with DFAT and the International Women's Development Agency. And we've been very focused on filling some of the gaps that we see existing around the 
the, um, the gender sensitivity or the lack of gender sensitivity of the way that the poverty is measured. I'm really interested in hearing how you see the relationship between poverty and particularly gendered poverty and issues of peace and security. You know, you've already highlighted that relationship between development and security, but you know, if we sort of hone down onto poverty specifically, I'd be, be really keen to hear your reflections on that relationship. Well, I think it's a very important issue. I don't think we understand it well enough. I think there's been some very good work by Francis Stewart and others about inequality and group inequalities and conflict, but typically those have been thinking about inequality in terms of um, regional or ethnically based inequalities and not necessarily looking at, at gendered inequalities. And I think that there's an enormous amount which, which can be done and I think a focus on poverty at the same time is very important in terms of absolute disadvantage. And one can imagine um, you know, this going in, in various ways. So I think it's difficult ex ante to say exactly how we would see the relationships as emerging. And I think it's also interesting to be thinking about um, kind of violence and conflict at different levels. So thinking about it in terms of risks of conflict um, at the household level, at the community level, as well as kind of the large-scale militarised conflict, you know, which is often what is thought about. But in many ways, I think the more localised conflict and certainly the, the family-level violence is, is what affects people more broadly. So I think kind of broadening the understanding of, of what we mean when we talk about conflict, so it's not just necessarily what security experts think about, although that's clearly very important and way too many lives are lost in that way. I think in terms of the day-to-day -day toll, um, these gendered aspects are going to be very important. So I think the work that you're doing is, is very important in um, providing, importantly, the data, but also from that, the insights which are needed to, to get a sense of what's going on. But to do it well, it um, uh, requires a lot of care, a lot of detail. What we're doing is, you know, you know, 10,000 foot level, you know, relying on published data, looking at what's available and getting a very much a broad brush picture. But I think the sort of work that you're doing is very complementary to that and very necessary, I think, to really understand about what's going on. So you spoke there a little bit about traditional security. And I think it's a, it's a very good point that the knowledge that your nation state is secure from attack from another nation state might not be much relief when you're not even secure in your own home. Do you think that the index that you're promoting could help promote a, a different conception of what it means to be secure? I hope it would contribute to that discourse. And I think... Um, by being able to uh, systematically kind of document the extent of insecurity at the different levels. In the past, we've been stymied by lack of comparable data. In our index for intimate partner violence, we rely on lifetime rates of violence, um, for which we have data for a fairly large number of countries now, about 120 countries how or 130 countries but um it would be far better to have current rates of violence prevalent rates from from the last 12 months so i think raising attention to this and encouraging governments and others to be systematically collecting data is very important likewise the the figures on community security i think are very important as well australia comes out i think somewhat shockingly is the worst country amongst developed country group in terms of women feeling unsafe in their community and i should have mentioned that earlier in the context of the Asia Pacific. The Australia does relatively well, as one might expect across many of the indicators, but particularly poorly, not only on intimate partner violence, but more so on um, feeling safe in your community. And I think that the work that's being done uh, in civil society, we heard um, at, the, um, at the Crawford School about work being done by, um, in the context of roundtables um, by uh, women, peace and security, uh, civil society groups, listening to what women feel to be their concerns and 
um, safety in the community, I think, emerge very strongly as well as intimate partner violence. So hopefully um, it'll be an opportunity to kind of raise awareness more broadly and I think also um, underline the universality of the agenda, uh, which comes out quite strongly, that it's not something which only affects Syria and Afghanistan, although uh, you know the proportions of, um, of damage and, and tragedy are, are clearly very large in those places but you know thinking about you know the ways in which insecurity can affect women all around the world even in places where women in general um, don't suffer you know the disadvantage that we see elsewhere. And so finally Jenny what do you see as the main challenges um, in terms of reaching a, a better level of gender equality when it comes to security issues? Well, I think in in general when one's talking about gender equality and challenges and barriers it comes back to norms and social norms and expectations, which are held not only by men but also by women, uh, but affect people's expectations and aspirations about what's appropriate, what people's ambitions, people's uh, conceptions about um, kind of the future. And the larger the extent or the greater the extent that we can move towards more equal conceptions or attitudes on those fronts, I think that'll have a, a multitude of benefits, not only in terms of security, but also in terms of social, economic and political opportunities as well. Well, we'll be keeping an eye out and we really hope that your new index gains traction. Jenny Klugman, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Jenny Klugman talking with us there and a big thanks to her for her time. Joining me for the pod roundup is Sharon Bessel. Sharon, what was your biggest takeaway from the discussion? So I thought that was a fascinating discussion, Nikki. I, I really enjoyed hearing about Jenny's new index. And I think there are a couple of take-home messages for, for me. The first one was really the political value of having a, an overall score that you can attribute to countries to be able to rank them and to demonstrate where countries are falling in relation to one another and in relation to countries within their region. So I think there's great value in that kind of global league ranking and being able to see where countries are situated. But I think the other thing that Jenny talked about and talked about very powerfully was the importance of going behind those high-level indicators. The overall number tells us something, but I think what was really clear from what Jenny said, that in a policy sense, in terms of what we do to respond to these really pressing issues, we need to know much more than what the high-level number's saying. And so we need to go behind that to understand across the different dimensions how countries are performing and to understand at the indicator level what's happening and where the differences are. Because I think she pointed out very clearly that even countries that are performing well may have some real weaknesses in some areas. And conversely, countries that are performing poorly may actually be doing well on some dimensions or some indicators. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the real power of the index is not the, the sheer ranking it has at the outset about where countries stand on this issue, but the data that it presents in getting to that figure. And I thought Australia is a really interesting example. I think Australia ranks 17th overall, but for one of its indicators, how women feel walking about their streets and neighbourhoods, Australia performs quite poorly. And I think that's really interesting to dig into. You know, what is it that is causing women to not feel safe in Australia? Is it the fact that they are unsafe or is it media perceptions and presentations of, of what's going on? And I think that's really a good point to address for policymakers seeking to look at that issue. 
Yeah, I think that's right, Nikki. I think, you know, it would be possible for Australia to walk away from this index feeling pretty good about what we're doing. But when you dig deeper, you can see where those issues are, are really quite pressing. See similar things in the United States with very high levels of intimate partner violence. And I think it was interesting too when Jenny pointed out that in many of the Scandinavian countries, which are known to be the champions of gender equality, still very serious problems around intimate partner violence as well. So, yeah, going behind really matters. And I think when we kind of dig deeper and we understand what's going on in relation to um, security, inclusion, uh, peace for, and justice for women, the value of what Jenny's talking about is the way in which it helps us to think differently about some of those issues. It really reframes the way we think about security. You know, traditionally we think about security in a very state-centric way. Um, a lot of those ideas come out of a very patriarchal structure of the state. And of course, the kinds of insecurity that are created by the external threats, by war and by conflict, are really important. And Jenny emphasised that. But there's more to security. And the way in which insecurity, injustice and exclusion impacts on people's day-to-day -day lives is really important. And so I think what uh, what Jenny's work is doing is helping us to rethink and reframe security and really to do that through a feminist lens so that we're actually thinking about what matters in people's lives and thinking about the day-to-day -day violence that the people experience as well as that high-level state violence. But clearly, from listening to Jenny talk, there's just so much depth in the work that she's doing. And so as well as listening to this podcast, I'd really encourage people to um, go online to the Crawford School and listen to the public lecture that she gave um, and to also read the report. And there'll be a link to that report from this podcast. So looking more closely and more deeply at this work is, is something that's really worthwhile. Well, that's all for the podcast today. And for our listeners out there, don't forget, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything that was discussed today. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And for all the latest in public policy in the Asia Pacific, there's always policyforum.net. Bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.